Good morning and welcome to Survival Guide. You're on Radio Skid Row with Joel and Lorna. Yeah, taking you right through to 2 p.m. every Friday. And this is our last show. And we are we are so excited to be talking to you, Mob. We've it's been, our last time talking to you, Mob, for a little while as well. Yeah, we'll be for a little while. We're, um, we're just here to close things off and hopefully um, get some feedback on the journey you've been going through and kind of come to a conclusion about what's going on in this community. Um, and the links between colonization and gentrification that we've been spelling out for all of you. Well, I think too, you know, it's about summarizing the tactics specifically used by the departments at the moment. And I think, you know, um, it's this this is what this last show is all about. Um, I'm calling it What Have You Done For Me Lately? Um, and we really want to take this as an opportunity and just use it as an opportunity to talk about all the shit these fellas have done for themselves mm. and all the things that they still haven't done for the people that they're actually employed to be servicing. Um, you know, because if that business isn't actually meeting those requirements, then why does it function in the first place? Precisely. Um, and, you know, just bringing it back to our community conversations that we've been really privileged, really lucky to have support with doing that um, support by 107 Projects and Skid Row as well, um, facilitating some community conversations that we've been calling out for, the community has been calling out for, individuals from the community have been calling out for for a very, very, very long time. Some of the first opportunities that the community, especially the Indigenous community in these spaces have had to gather to, to speak about the issues that are affecting them in this community. And we, we thought that it was our responsibility to mm-hmm. be able to offer up the platform that we've been given and the privileges that we've been afforded to be able to create this content, create this show and create this mouthpiece for a community. So it's been really great. There's been some amazing people coming along. It's been a really great turnout at every event that we've had. People have been really involved and really, really engaged. And it's just a, it's a, it's it's a privilege to be able to work and do stuff with these people. And I think it just has to be said too that when we talk about community conversations, we're talking about conversations um, that aren't being facilitated by people that have an invested interest in all of this other stuff. Um, you know, we are purely... Um, being supported um, to facilitate conversations and hear back from our community rather than push a pre-selected agenda and, um, you know, a a pre-prepared, pre-prepared, is that even a word, Um, agenda when it comes Mm. to this stuff. And it's all about pushing their plans rather than actually listening to community as well. Anybody that knows about consultation processes knows that it's kind of you know, it doesn't really benefit the people that they're actually supposed to be listening to. Um, the consultation process is often just a ticker box sort of thing in that process in a big sort of grand kind of plan and scheme of things um, with, you know, all of that money that gets tied up in these kind of projects as well. You know, people are getting paid to do this sort of stuff exactly. all the time. The secondary um, sort of industry that builds around these issues, these big government plans um, originally, you know, they, they tick a box in sort of stimulating employment and stimulating, but only for certain groups, and it's usually very much people from outside that community. Mm-hmm. So the the really important part of consultation is, of course, that what you've just touched on is listening and, and being open. I think that, you know, Aboriginal communities um, are really apprehensive when it comes to consultation processes because we know, 
you know, that all of these previous consultation processes have kind of not ended up in anything substantial that community have really, um, you know, it's not addressing community needs. And again, if it's not addressing community needs, what is the reason for these services to function and these departments to function? Um, you know, we we know the answer to that. Um, it's just an arm of, you know, colonial program, a colonial plan to kind of just rid black faces from black land. Divide and dissolve. Um, um, you know, we've been st- we've been developing a case pretty much. We've been researching a lot, and that case, I guess, is just really kind of getting people to understand how important it is to retain Aboriginal presence in Redfern and Waterloo. It's so important, you know. And I've been talking about what what it looks like um, in twenty years' time if we don't fight for this community. Um, which is, you know, pretty much the plans of 1788 coming to final fruition. It's coming to that final phase, um, which means that genocide has worked Um, because, you know, here in Sydney where it's all started, in a place that has been fought for and built by Aboriginal people and and other marginalised people, but really Redfern has been known as the black heart of the rest of this nation for a very long time because of the high population, because of the urban area, the urban um, community, Aboriginal community that it was, it is famous for and still to this day, even though, you know, that community is um, pretty much being erased, um, you know, bit by bit with each demolition. Um you know, so that's that's where we're at. That's really what this episode is about. We've been talking to community. We're going to play um, some of those conversations. Um, we've also got some other interviews and stuff coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what it means to be moved and displaced and isolated from your community after growing up here. You know, when people become parents, I guess... A lot of the hard work, you know, and it's it's a really confronting... Pro- it's one of the most confronting things that you'll ever probably do is, you know, dedicate the rest of your life to raising another person and um, doing all those things for them, um, you know. So it's a lot of um, mental, psychological, emotional challenges that we go through and we often replicate the things that we have been read in. We've, we often replicate stuff that, um, you know, that we have grown up around. So how hard is that then to, you know, raise your children outside of such a strong, vibrant black community where you were encouraged to be black, um, you know, where it was a safe space, um, where visibility was everywhere, um, you know. These are the kind, this is the, the, the reality of um, the future of the next 20 years and we really think that it's important to just get that... Um, that conversation happening and just get that across to everybody, you know, because there's only a small percentage of people that are living in Redfern Waterloo area and in the whole inner city for that matter that are going to be able to stay there. Exactly. So that's that's what we've got to cover today and we're going to start now um, with some audio that we've taken from our community conversations, the one that we've had most recently. We've held a forum at 107 Projects talking about maintenance issues. Um, and just another thing, this is in navigating this system, we're trying to include as many perspectives around these issues as possible, but really bring it back to the key issue that this is the, you know, settler colonialism and dispossession of Indigenous people through invasion is this is the context of all contexts in this in, in this in this 
battle. And what we've been trying to provide in these last this whole show with you um, and this journey that we're trying to take you on is being able to inspect all the dynamics and all of the singular um, instances that intersect with people's lives when they uh, go up against the issues around gentrification. Um, but now we're going to cut to some tenant conversation, tenant perspectives on their issues with maintenance, mm. and we'll cover up on the end of that. But um, so this is a conversation we had on th- last Thursday. Last Thursday, we we we. If you were listening, we would have let you know about it. Um, great turnout and a really good conversation was had. We're going to play some now, and. We'll be back after this um, edit. Tell us how hard it has been to just simply lodge maintenance issues. How long do you have to wait? Um, yeah. You know, what are some of the things that you've experienced? You're all anonymous voices, you know, yeah. so we don't want you to feel like you can't say stuff. But this is kind of why we're doing this is because many people don't understand the stresses that are involved with just dealing with the officers and trying to maintain your property. Uh, okay, so cool. So I will I will tell you my maintenance issue at the moment without saying what it is. First of all, well, it's a leaking bathroom. Okay, so my bathroom ceiling started leaking, a uh, little bit of a drip coming through it. Now there's all over. It's sagging. Uh, it's coming down the walls. It's not sewage this time, which it was ten years ago. It's just water. Yeah, there's a ba- <clears throat> yep, there's a bathroom upstairs. So it's coming from there that. They're also having the same problem because it's coming from above them. Okay, the people underneath me are also having the same problem. So I've called them in April. Uh, I know the other the other flats above and below have also called them. I've been to um, some of their pop-up maintenance. I've called them again. It's been escalated. They've sent emails and a couple of guys came out and take photos. Um, but it just keeps getting worse. Um, so I've made like probably half a dozen calls. I've, like I said, been to the pop-ups. I've been to see the boss of maintenance when he has his weekly meetings, um, and he's going to get onto it. Um, but it just doesn't happen. I'll just quickly. I'll just like you know, it's the same issues. Like women's housing are the same. You have you might have a complaint and they don't get back to you. Things like that. You know put you in areas that aren't anywhere connected to you culturally or anything. Because they think, oh, you're from Sydney, everybody got to live where they put you. But, like, that's, that's not right. Yeah, a lot of different things. <laughs> where I live, one woman, um, her sewage leaked into the, out of the toilet, into the hall. The whole place stunk like a sewer for months. Mm. Naturally, she contacted them immediately, and they just never got around to it. Mm. And for yeah. six months, she had to live like that, so unhygienic. A lot of these properties aren't actually healthy for us to live in, and it's not because of the properties. It's because of the, the Department of Housing failing to manage them and failing to maintain them and upkeep them and actually take on tenants' issues. Uh, my experience is, uh, is a problem with communication with these people of the department. And uh, they, are, they are so you uh, like something that they don't, they, they are over you uh, mm. all the time. Mm. Huh? Uh, for example, my last uh, visit, they said, told me, uh, I, told, I asked them, why are you photographing that thing there? They were taking photographs. 
Is this in your in your apartment? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, uh, it's sort of a, a lack of respect of your privacy. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, we are the Department of Housing. Yeah, sort of there's a, a lot of... Like, we are the police and we... Uh, the entitlement. Uh, a lot of aggression. Yeah, 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 this sort of thing. Uh, we are, don't answer questions. When you receive the letters, their letters that said, you can ask questions and we nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they go there. Sometimes, sometimes they, uh, they ask you to, to wait, for example, in my case, in summer, hours. My, my place in summer is very hot. They don't tell you when they want to go. Then... If you're not there, they take you to the tribunal, mm. and then the tribunal set the time, mm. and, and I have witnesses, huh? by the way, I have friends from the private sector, I mean, they, they're not involved in the public sector. Mm. They don't care. Yeah. They don't come, and, and even the tribunal says, go certain day at some time. And they don't come. They don't come. Is, they are the, the, the kings and queens. Um, you know how like they'll send you out a text and if you miss the text they take you off the list mm. so there's all those type of like i don't know power plays on you got to be in it to win it yeah they're, they're really <laughs> aggressive even like on a face-to-face like when you go in there to the offices and stuff like that every time i've gone into offices i've ended up having an emotional breakdown and have to have a support person in there it's because the way that they you know they have no customer service skills mm-hmm. like I uh, we get letters about checking fire um, the alarms and stuff like that they'll send you a letter and say uh, we're coming to check it mm-hmm. if you if you're not home that day if you don't get the letter or whatever mm-hmm. you just got other arrangements mm-hmm. they'll send you not anyway on the third one they will say um, we'll bring a locksmith and we will change your locks mm-hmm. to get in to check the, fu- the fire yeah. alarms um, so yeah, that's I'm saying that's no, quite a problem. In my case, the first, the first, no, there's the, the first, yeah, no, the first two letters I got from them, saying they were coming. That there was a phone number saying if you, if this date's no good for you, please call, and we can make a different date. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the phone number was wrong. They told me that in the third yeah. letter, which also had the threat of the locksmith. Mm-hmm. And when was that? Uh, that was them. about six months ago. So, uh, or no less, like three months ago. If you want, yeah, if you want me to. Yeah, well, it's a safe space, you know. You have anonymity, anonymity. <laughs> so, um, I rent in sort of Marrickville, and um, I'm in a private rental sort of house, a shared house with three other people. Um, it's not easy getting maintenance done but it doesn't really compare to I think what public housing tenants have to go through but I still find it annoying despite the fact that it's not as bad. Um, I um, guess what are your waiting times like when you lodge uh, an issue with maintenance well how long would you have to wait what's the process? So it varies the waiting times it can be done within a couple of days uh, the worst we've had to wait is is a month two months um, mm-hmm. And that was, so that was a pretty bad situation where we moved in, but they hadn't sorted the gas out, so we had a bit of time without hot water. Um, but, to, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, um, it was in, this was March, March and April. Um, but we don't have to go into the office, and, you know, it's private. We phone, we email, and... 
because I have a relatively middle-class accent, like let's face it, like I'm not white, but I have a relatively middle-class accent, and uh, English, yeah, and uh, English is my first language, right? I, you know, and I speak with an English accent, so it it kind of has, it's not as bad. I don't have to face that sort of, the kind of humiliation, if you like, and the kind of lack of privacy, I don't have to face that. And also I live with two other people who are, you know, um, have a certain degree of privilege as well, so we can go in together as well, the three of us if we need to go in together, so it's not as lonely a process, and it's a quiet office. Mm -hmm. So there's a space for us to go in and talk to them without anyone else being there, mm -hmm. so we don't have to vo you know, air whatever's going on in our house in front of other people. You don't have to call a call centre. No. I can't speak for people who live in public housing, but I have been interviewing like um, people who do, and I've also interviewed... MPs in the area and there's a hotline to call in to local MPs for maintenance for public housing maintenance. And That's do you know that hotline number? Um, no, can no, you I share don't. It with our can you send it to us so that we can actually can share that? It, but that's how bad it is. Like if there's a goddamn um, hotline, <laughs> right? Wait, so I'm surprised nobody knows it because this was told to me by a local by an MP that I interviewed in the area that there wow. is a hotline for tenants to call in. Like, why is there a hotline? Because this is a New South Wales state government sort of housing. Like, you know, why is there a hotline directly for people to call their local MPs to get maintenance done? <laughs> Amongst all of the people I've spoken to who live in um, public and social housing across Waterloo and Redfern, maintenance has come up consistently as an issue. Um, I just can't stress how terrible it is, essentially. Um, and across the diversity of experiences, it is repeated. Maintenance not being done on time, causing health issues, or just causing like inconvenience. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how they are able to get away with it. Well, lately was a program in SBS about the slums in the Victorian area, mm. back in, 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 the, in Britain. Mm. They treat people like rats. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, the same sort of people, you can say, oh, this was history, huh? sort of thing, huh? mm. but it's the same sort of way to treat you. Yeah, see? yeah. This, huh? this like entitlement yeah. to your space and yeah, this sort yeah. of disregard of your own. Yeah. That's what this, that's what this feels like is like this sort of this willful neglect as like a trope that plays out not only within the confines of someone's house themselves, but then the way that the entire kind of a state is treated in, with a lot of its maintenance issues is kind of it legitimizes an, an, an idea that they're they're run down and that they need to be replaced and that so it then becomes a more solid argument for this sort of yeah willful neglect that you see kind of the, the, the department has actually willfully neglected these properties for all of these years mm. absolutely uh, um, you know, when I first joined the, the WAPAG group, that was the issue then, maintenance of properties. It's still the issue today. So that was a conversation with, that we held at 107 Projects with the Redfern Waterloo community, um, calling out to tenants, asking them about their maintenance issues and access to maintenance, um, the trials and tribulations of what it means to live and res like reside um, and spend your daily life dealing with maintenance problems on this willful neglect as we kind of heard towards the end as this reoccurring issue and trope um, throughout all of public housing and all of the histories around public housing, uh, which I think is kind of em emblematic of um, the government's current attitude towards public housing. There's this 
there's through the acts of willful neglect, which is directly um, related to and, and, and as we covered on that on the Tale of Three Cities episode, when you talk about the the way in which property was defined by um, colonial settlers and the demarcation of what was declared as wasteland, you know, land that was neglected until there was an opportunity to be able to use it, um, which is always directed by the market. You see this similar mentality happening within the public housing sector and the way that they are currently, I mean, the Liberal government is currently imposing, you know, the the sell-off of priority land um, through this willful neglect, which is... And talking about how the ways in which the Department of Housing do not provide access to um, the best ways to to to, to seek out um, maintenance problems, also the kind of secondary market that builds around these maintenance issues. The ma- I think was we heard a tenant oh, wow. talking about the ways in which the the um, the contracts that are assigned will always be neglected because if it's some if it's a small piece of work the contracts because they're outside contractors won't won't do the work immediately in the case of a leaky bathroom they won't want to change they won't want to tighten the the leak in the in the in in the um in the pipes what they'll do is they'll willfully neglect that issue until it rots out the ceiling it rots out the floors and then they have to and then they get a bigger contract to replace mm. all of the ceilings and floors in the six levels of the walk-up yeah. building well they'll, they'll often say it's just cheaper to do this um they and even if you complain they'll you know acknowledge your complaints but they'll say straight up that they don't actually have the you know that that won't be authorized um, and this is what we're told to kind of do, um, you know, and and I'm sure there are thousands and thousands of different experiences like this, um, you know, which is why it was such a good opportunity to get people to talk about this sort of stuff because who really wants to talk about their maintenance stresses? Who wants to talk about how, you know, um, how mouldy um, their bathrooms are. Nobody really wants to talk about this stuff. There's levels of shame as well because of, you know, the way that our people have been policed and have really been stigmatised through emissions and things like that. Um, you know, that white morality um, has really done a job on, on our people. Um, you know, so often there's a lot of shame attached yeah. to even lodging these complaints. Or problematising issues, problematising things that are directly linked to the ways in which people want to conduct their lives. You know, the, the fact that the maintenance issues are, are not dealt with quickly means that, you know, family groups that operate in a certain way, if there's more people in the house, you know, you've got, you know, you've got your grannies or you've got your nephews or your uncles and, you know, you've got people over that well, only, put, like, you know... If you've got babies crawling as well, they're going to have a whole lot of skin problems, they're going to yeah. have a whole lot of health problems because of, you know, leaks um, and things like that, water um, within the carpet, sewerage, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff um, that we're experiencing that pretty sure you know i'm pretty sure we're the only people that are experiencing this stuff and it is an actual tactic and this is what we've been talking about and then you know when you actually try to lodge it and you go in and talk to people at the desk you know you like i i I was talking about the anxiety that i used to have you know i used to have to have a support person um you know there um and just feeling like just feeling like 
I was being judged and there was a dossier being prepared um, about the way that I lived and who was there and things like that, you know. Um, and that's the thing as well. Like these are all the things that our people are being demonised for even after they've supposedly had policies in there for these white organisations to understand how um, they're living... Um, their lifestyles are totally different their ways of family are totally different the way that they view family and all this stuff has to be taken into account when they house aboriginal people and again you know there's so many issues when it comes to housing aboriginal people it's a national wide thing and i guess in this community um it's not only aboriginal people but it's a high population of poor people as well in there that are also being neglected and that are also having to live in these conditions that you wouldn't expect your dog to live in pretty much. Um, you know, uh, we had a comment there saying that we was getting treated like rats. We we spoke um, about a whole episode about the rat plague, um, you know, and all the health problems. And it's you can, it's, you can easily see those parallels um, and... You know, I guess go back and you look at the series. Um, we've pretty much been talking about how there's going to be no department of housing. There's, it's going to be all privatised. It's all going to be privatised. Exactly. So what does that mean? Because we know when it comes down to non non profits and for profits, those for profits uh, for profit organisations, they are literally functioning to create a profit. And so that, that often means that, you know, a lot of, you know, go back again and look at our neoliberalism and erosion of black value systems to really look at how the pushing for profit and acquiring of, of, of that money build up, how, um, you know, humanness is often ignored um, and it creates a lot of social problems, a lot of health problems, a lot of other problems. And this is kind of, you know, the whole crux of our whole conversation, this whole series, is that colonisation has never actually done anything for us. Which is why, again, we're calling this episode, What Have You Done For Me Lately? And on that note, we're going to cut to a song. We will be back after the break with a conversation that was had around a protest held on the same day as our community forum talking about the issues of housing, homelessness across Sydney in general. This is a, a building issue that we all understand and, and it, it affects Indigenous communities first and that's why we've come to this place. But we'll be back after the break. You've been listening to Radio Skid Row 88.9. Keep it locked. What's up, girl? He stood me up again. Again? Mm-hmm. Well, what's up with this guy? Do you really like him that much? Yes, honey, I love him. He is fine. He does a lot of nice things for me. I know he used to do nice stuff for you, but what has he done for you lately?
Welcome back. This is Joel and Lorna, Radio Skid Row Survival Guide. Um, we are now talking of the effects of relocation, maintenance issues for the final episode covering the issues around gentrification and what happens. We've got so- we've got someone on the line, but we just mm. wanted to play that audio mm. drop just of um, um, somebody actually mentioned the some of the issues around dispossession and some of the experiences that people are experiencing after being moved out and what is happening um, for them. Like we've been trying to talk about the impacts of um, that moving young families away from service providers and away from a lot of the things that really make this community accessible to young families and stuff like that as well and to single women and you know um, I don't know I think a lot of people that are living here they're uh, really are not thinking about this sort of stuff until they're in those situations so I think like it would be if, if you felt okay with that is to just talk about you know how what are some of the things that you have to so i guess like what you just said there like you know moving your way like i know a lot of blackfellas they might only go to the ams they might not use private doctors so they move them in areas where there are no blackfella kind of organizations and things like that so that's a big one there with all the development that's happening i guess i worry that and we've just been talking about it but in terms of black fellas, like where's our community and what do we have as black fellas here in this place that we've grown and, you know, have mums, grannies and that that grew up around here. So, yeah. Hello. Hey. How are you going? Good, um, we So we've just, uh, we've just been listening to that community conversation um, that we had last Thursday. Um, yep. And I've been talking to you a little bit on the side. Um, so we've got we've got someone on the line at the moment who is a young mum um, and who is living out at... Sorry, could you give us a little bit? Yep, Granville. Granville. Um, yeah, so if you just wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, about your situation, um, where you're at now, um, you know, how long you've been living out there as well? Yep. Um, so for about two years, first I was um, moved, relocated to Bankstown um, from Erskineville when I um, had my daughter. Um, I was just pretty much told, you know, housing in, in Sydney, like the inner city was just not going to happen. And I looked at Marrickville, you know, the lucky ones, they get um, placed in Campsie. I waited for Campsie. There was no housing in Campsie. So the next one was Bankstown. Um, then I had to move from Bankstown just because I was in a really, really high building and um, it was just really hard and the lifts were breaking down and stuff like that. So um, with a baby, that was just impossible. And then I got transferred to Granville where I currently am. Yeah. And how's that for how's that living situation for you and baby now? It's that weird thing, you know, like what a lot of Indigenous people, we feel like, I feel blessed, like I'm grateful that I have this wonderful home where I can raise my daughter, but then the other side of it is that I'm really isolated, you know, um, train fares one way is like $5 something, so, you know, my family, they can't um, afford a lot of the time to come out and with petrols and the tolls as well, so to get out to Granville, there's like multiple ways, but the fastest is a toll and, you know, you just can't afford it. Mm. And you've lived your whole life in this way? Yeah, so we moved from the country like, you know, a lot of black fellas do and I've grown up in Erskineville, like Waterloo area for the last 10, 12 years. I did all my schooling um, locally and then 
just as soon as I had my daughter, you know, I was just looking for housing and I just got moved out. Mm, it's really interesting that there was, you know, uh, when these people um, that do the service providing, they're supposed to talk uh, about, you know, your needs and requirements. And it's just interesting that they've just straight out told you that it's impossible to house you in, in a city area. Literally, that, that's literally what happened. Like they're trying, like they're supposed to give you an option and they've just straight up just told you you don't have an option. Yeah, it's like it's not going to happen and um, another family moved out of the Bankstown property because of the lift problems as well. So I was told that like, oh, it has a problem with lift and I didn't understand the severity of it until I was in it. Yeah, and that's, I had a really similar situation, um, you know, like it was fine, my my flat was fine for me until I did have my son and, um, yeah. you know, doing everything on my own, like you literally can't even do a food shop. Um, yeah, that's, that's the thing. <laughs> um, you know, and like I used to feel sorry for them old people and then I was, you know, standing there with my baby and everything, feeling sorry yeah. for myself. Um, and then the maintenance stuff, you know, like they never used to come and fix them. Yeah. And if they did come and fix them, that the whole flat, the whole lift would be literally shut down for like yeah. a whole day. Um, and they, these are the ones in here. Um, uh, how I wanted to ask, um, you know, just because my boy, he's, I'm starting to prepare for getting him school ready. Um, yeah. What what do these things kind of mean for you as somebody um, now isolated from these services and not being able to, you know, um, uh, your child not being able to go to the schools that you went to and even experience yeah. a community um, that, you know, you've experienced. Um. So the thing, yeah, like, because, you know, I was used to being in a majority Indigenous community, you know, so I had that blessing of when I was rural, just being surrounded by, you know, community and then even when I was growing up, community. But it's the opposite for my daughter now, you know. My daughter will go to, like, a play group and we're the only people of colour there, you know. So um, we stand out like sore thumbs and, you know, there's lots of language barriers as well. So other other communities that speak the same language, like Arabic, for example, we all know that lots of different um, countries speak Arabic, but they can relate to one another, you know what I mean? And mm. um, I just feel very left out. And even my daughter, like, kids won't play with her or they don't talk to her. You know, they might be from non-speaking um, English backgrounds or they look at her and she doesn't look like them and she looks at them and they don't look like her, you know? So I've seen that a lot. And the way I remedy it, I just have to cut my baby in, you know, into the city and take it on, like, little days that we might have community days or even, ironically, I take her to... Um, a library group that's near my mum's house who still lives in Erskineville just so she can have that community involvement mm. and, um, you know, be with this, be with her, with her culture and, you know, kids that have a similar background and, you know, feel comfortable with her too. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's so important to the way their development at that time. Yeah. Um, and I'm just finding it really hard, um, you know, just with some of the things because we've got an influx of all these different people living in the community as well. Um, it. And it's real. Like, I guess on the on the other end of that, you know, I experience anxiety. I kind of yeah. um, wanted to move out when you know it come to that point because I just really didn't see any future for myself. That's I was it. literally that that depressed and just that yeah. disillusioned and that defeated That's that it. I really didn't see any future um, and was actually preparing myself to leave. And then, yeah. you know, on on we was really lucky to to be in that conservation zone that is yeah. going to be left. And now I'm just kind of realising what that means for me. Like, we're going to be sitting yeah. there watching 
and being, yes. you know, having that the same experience, one. but having yeah. that same experience right there in my community, um, mm. you know, like where my son now is like experiencing racism at the age of two yeah. um, in the playgrounds exactly. and stuff, you know. That they have, exactly. And exactly when my daughter was going to this multicultural group and it's multicultural, like, you know, you're supposed to be inclusive and be comfortable with everyone. I was like, yeah, you know, my little baby's out here representing Aboriginal Australia, but it's the flip side of that. They're saying multicultural, just like this country, but in actuality, you know, everyone's just living in their little little safe areas and the mums sit with the bums and then the kids play the kids with it and whatever it is, you just want out, you know what I mean? So yet again, I'm being marginalised and I'm mm-hmm. trying to fit into mainstream services and trying to mainstream my daughter, but look what happens to us. You know, my baby has no one to play with. Yeah, no, and you know, um, we haven't moved, and I'm experiencing mm-hmm. a really similar thing, which I think yeah. is interesting. You know, um, and you know, it it has to, it, it's it's a two tiered thing. You know, like that's what happens when they shift population. Is there's also you know, we're often asking ourselves, where is everybody? How come we don't get a mad turnout the way that we're used to? And it's like, well, hold on, we only got like three hundred people here. Um, I live in the community, and it's happening with so many people. And like we were yarning about before, that's the reason why I wanted to jump on the radio because you you think you're right. You're like, yeah, I've got this beautiful place, or I've got a home now. I can I can set my roots down. But when you start realizing, oh, I've got to catch a train. Like for example, mm-hmm. Granville train lines. They just um have changed the the route, so it's it's literally nearly an hour now. So it's all stops to Granville, which is even more time and even more money to pay. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's those little things like that that you don't really picture. And I, I think that's why I wanted to jump on the radio station is to let people know, you know, that if they are moving you out west, really think about um, what's your support system, are you going to be strong enough to get through it? And just, I just want to let you guys know, you know, it's going to be hard, really hard. No, it's really important information. We're so lucky and so glad that we could we could have this conversation and yeah. be able to share this platform with, with you yeah. know, our mob because that's, that's what it. it's really about. This stuff is going to be happening for the next 20 years, even with the train lines as well. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's it's a really serious situation that we need our people to get our heads around um, yeah. and unless they kind of, you know, are in these situations, they kind of won't think about it, you know, because... No, not at all. And like with the AMS, so my daughter, um, she's had like some medical things, so I always take her to the AMS. Like I just won't take her anywhere else. And, you know, a lot of Indigenous women... Um, have had these experiences with other general practitioners. I won't take my daughter anywhere else. So you can imagine if you've got a baby that's sick or mm. you've got a baby that's temperature, I'm literally carting my child an okay. hour to the to the um, AMS, Redford AMS, and then an hour back to Granville. Or if I'm lucky, you know, I have to ask, pay my um, family member $20 in and $20 out, you know. So little things like that um, are very taxing and those are little intricacies of our lives, you know, things that are important to us, you know, and we should have the right to, to live close to these services mm-hmm. um, and have access to them, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the whole reason why them services were created in the first yeah. place, was to service the <laughs> Aboriginal community, the, you know. Exactly. Which was one of the largest at the time. Yeah. Uh, Incredible. Um, yeah, I... I, I I wish that I could keep talking to you yeah. about all this because it's so, you know, and we will finish these yeah. these yarns in our own time. Yeah, I just it. I just wanted to um, ask you if you had any um, any kind of lasting comments. This is our last show as well for our whole season. Um, so, you know, we're just really hoping that people take something from it. We're not sure yeah. exactly. Um, but, yeah. you know, we're just really hoping that everybody can get something from these yeah. conversations. Yeah, 
I guess my message would be thanks to you, Lorna, for having me speak out and, um, you know, to the other women or other families that might be looking at getting relocated or getting proposals um, handed to them. Just always, you know, plan, plan, plan. If you're being asked to move to Mount Druitt, Granville, Bankstown, Kempsey, anywhere, just really think about the train lines, the bus routes, and really try to assess what that's going to mean for you and mean for your children. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really wish that these followers that are providing these services are listening as well because if they're yeah. shifting populations, they've also got to shift those services and that's what what should be happening. That's um, it. So thank you so much for your time and just thank you for just giving it a go and just, you know, really talking about about a lot of your concerns. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It was great to have a chat. Yeah, and we'll yarn soon, eh, and have that play, sure. play date too. Yeah, for sure, sis. <laughs> Thanks. See ya. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. <sighs> yeah. Um. The reality of it all really sets in when we think about raising our children in mm. in these situations. Um. And really thinking about how we were raised in in this environment, and it's heartbreaking. It's really, really heartbreaking. Um. It's really, it's really dis- discerning. It's really upsetting. To just really think about that, um, you know, my sister had been relocated. I see the stress that they go through. I see the stress that's and the pressures that are put on my my niece, um, you know, and the other family members around to to you know make up for that travel. Um, this is that, and this is that kind of you know as we've been trying to unpack over the last couple of or over the last season is just talking about the tactics that are used by these communities. I mean, tactics that are used against these communities by the government by the enforcement bodies by the department of housing to segment dissolve and, and redistribute completely dispossess the community by moving the families out and and i mean that's the that's the essential thing is we have currently the family and community services minister making it impossible like literally legislating against any social behaviour and anyone who comes into the community with any sort of charges from living in the community. It's it's a five year it's a ban for anyone who has in the last five years a drug a drug possession charge mm. to move back into the Redfern community. And that's There's, that ongoing the 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 remnants, the stank that's left over from the whole war on drug shit. Mm. You know, how can you create how can you declare war against an inanimate object? It's not a war against them, it's a war against Poor people. Exactly. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Do we want to even talk about how we haven't ex- actually have a, a prime minister at the moment? We've got a little bit of breaking news. Well, the breaking news is that we were in the middle of that segment talking with Alicia. Uh, as we entered the segment, there was a, uh, there was a, a, a moment of uh, no leadership in this country, but it has just been announced that the the new leader of the Liberal Party, who won uh, by a slight majority of five members, um, is Scott Morrison. <laughs> the Liberal Treasurer, who is now one of the largest advocates for the economic um, breakdown and dissolution of, one, public housing, but also for offshore det- det- detention. Um, it's a sad state of affairs when we are realising that the party that is in power is becoming stronger and more right-wing. Mm. And then the same party that created these problems that left them back in the in the sixties and stuff like that, you know, they never actually quite follow through with any of their grand schemes. And that's, 
You know, that's why Aboriginal people are so critical of government. Mm. Um, and to call it what it is, this is a colonial enforcing um, program. This is a this is still genocide. You know, as we've just heard from from that from that young mum now, how hard that is to get her baby just to simply see a doctor. Um, you know that that stuff is going to impact on their on on their um, their the way that well, the value of life, mm, mm. the quality, yeah, absolutely, and, um, and the fact that these these huge large scale redevelopments are brought out with incentivize around. Um, the increase in value of land and the ability to for the government in power to make money off of what they believe is their own property. But when mm. they rush these issues, there is no accountability and no time afforded to the real implications, which is the services that are un- mm. already underfunded and understaffed that provide for these communities. It's just it's a it's really it's really just a. a a huge mess at the moment and I think we are now seeing that play out at the top level of our political system as well um, but let's not be distracted by these awful awful white men fighting over these squabbling things while the rest of the country I, burns I guess I guess the, the thing is right is that these both of these this two-party system is never actually going to listen to anybody other than themselves um, and whoever's in there that small majority of privileged white people and privileged people that are all benefited from stolen land and genocide, all in there still silencing us. Um, you know, I've never had any... Uh, yeah, white politics is a nasty, nasty game. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, Aboriginal people get used as political football, which, you know, is is kind of always happening. But, you know, again, I'm just really interested as to accountability. Who... Who will be accountable? Who is going to be accountable? Because we're still waiting for someone to step up. We're still waiting for someone to go, yes, this is shit. What can we do? 2018, we are yet to have somebody fucking even try to do that shit. Like, we've had a few people, but it's all been masked. It's all been their own alternative, ulterior motives, their pre-planned agendas. Um, you know, it's never about listening, which is why this has been, you know, we've just been literally throwing our platform out there, this uh, this show, using it um, to get as many voices on and talking about what we're, what, what is happening um, because we don't get listened to in these, you know, in these channels of, um, I don't know what you'd want to call them, bureaucracy. Uh, white bureaucracy um so you know we can (sighs) levels of stress man like people you know just really need to think about what this all all means for for somebody trying to just get through their day and that these that these these processes these highly aggressive highly um disruptive and highly um deceptive processes around the ways in which public housing is being dealt with, um, large-scale plans for the city are being released to people, the, exactly that, the, the, the psychological stress and trauma that that puts these communities through, and then the underfunding of the services that are meant to provide for these communities as well. Um, I think we're going to go for a break. Just to recap, this is our last episode for the season of Skid Row's show Survival Guide. We've been talking about the 
implications and the connections between gentrification and colonization. We'll be back after this with some recordings from a protest that was held last week on a march on Parliament around the issues of the divestment of public housing, the sell-off of public land, and the underfunding of services, um, all being used as leverage and issues by the current Liberal government to incentivize more sell-off, more um, aggressive legislation. Exactly, Mm. more aggressive legislation against tenants, the responsabilization of tenants when it's really the government's responsibility to be able to provide equitable service to every public housing tenant and that housing is not a privilege, it is a human right. We'll be back after the break. You've been listening to Skid Row. Mama told me to be happy Cause you always get what you want Don't speak, you said I have your love But not how much it will cost Mama told me when I was a baby I'd love you but I don't Don't speak, I hope you're happy Cause I think I paid what you want And by the time I go Welcome back to Survival Guide on Radio Skid Row, 88.9 FM. We are an hour through our final segment and final show for this season. Mm -hmm. It's been a long journey. We've been talking about a lot of different key issues and a lot of really involving and really, really hopefully some really interesting points. I mean, the things that hit us in our communities are the things that play out across Australia and have done historically since Mm. arrival. And I guess in the process of this, it's just reaffirmed a lot of shit we already knew, which was government's fucked. Absolutely. (laughs) You might hear in the background a a bit of background noise. We've got some visitors from, I think, Burwood Girls High School in the studio watching us make 
beautiful radio today on this Friday afternoon. Um, so pay no attention to them. We're just trying to <laughs> radicalise some young women while we're in the studio. Um, so off the top of the last conversation, we just had a phone interview with uh, Alicia Johnson, um, a young Indigenous woman and mother living now outside of the community she grew up in, mm-hmm. um, out in Granville. Uh, Granville being another site um, that has fallen under the gaze of uh, land and housing and urban growth as a development centre in this development corridor um, that is being kind of pushed along by the Liberal government around mm-hmm. uh, issues around infrastructure. But what was really interesting was her own perspective on her access to those services and infrastructure as a young Indigenous woman and the amount of money that it costs her on the daily just to be able to move and that mobility. Um, when we have a government that incites a dialogue and a discourse around bettering um, infrastructure on the back of um, large-scale redevelopment, but they're completely pulling the rug and completely pulling the support out of these the, the people that they're claiming to be helping. Mm, but it's so not about that. It's not about housing people. It's not about providing services. It's about making money for these private developers. 100%. And these contractors and, you know, the whole shifting from a service provider to pretty much non uh, for-profit kind of um real estate sort of thing um you know because the business that they're really knee deep in is buying and selling land and in this case in Waterloo they're just giving it away 100 um, percent we have um as we've said before the colonial experiment it has always and always will be a system of wealth extraction from land and this has played out over the last 250 years on this on this country in the ways of agricultural agricultural production, mining exploration and resource extraction and also through speculative property um, investment. And we are seeing that play out today and it's being aided by the Liberal government. The colonial process is an inherently extractive one and it is playing out in front of your very eyes. And if you didn't think that gentrification was colonisation, we hope that you do now. Well, it definitely is, and these are all the ways in which it is. Yes. Um, and we've been counting all of the ways. Um, and, you know, this is all a bit of a love letter to our resilience as well and acknowledging and celebrating all of the shit that we have survived. Um, and, you know, in order to survive the next 200 years, we have to take a look back and look how our people have survived the last 200 years. Um, so we've got. Some... We're going to look back to last week um, on the <laughs> on the day that we had the community forum. We also uh, we also participated. There was a uh, a march on Parliament around issues of public housing and access to um, services, uh, the erosion, the erasure of public housing, the sell off of public land, all demanding. Um, public housing tenants as well as union members, uh, members of the Indigenous community in Sydney, all coming together and rallying against par- marching on Parliament House, demanding that there be not less public housing but more in this country. Um, I've got some, we've got some audio segments cut out of that. I think also on the back of what has currently been a really volatile week politically um, in this country, all these white fellows fighting about who gets to run this country into the ground. There, we have some voices from some non-consolidated um, or, you know, some outer, outside of the Liberal Party, um, speaking about around the key issues um, that are affecting public housing and homelessness in this community. Because all of these things are linked. It's not just the property speculation that affects investors and the mum and dad home investor that you see plastered all over 
television and in the newspapers. It's the gentrification and the sell-off of public land, which then intrinsically links itself to large, larger increases or increasing numbers of homelessness in, in our communities, in our cities. Um, but yeah, first off, here's a recording, an introduction to the march, uh, housing uh, activist you know, from Queensland and who works in Queensland and in Sydney. His name is Jim McAvey. Um, I'll just play that for you now. The state government is now proposing to crack down on bad public housing tenants. What does that mean? What, is, what, are they, what are they doing there? In return for the pressure from, for more public housing, they decided to turn the fire onto the public housing tenants themselves. And as has been pointed out, we've got a $300 million plus backlog of maintenance. And if you talk to people in public housing, you know that nothing's being done. And part of that is a strategy to run down the public housing and then say, oh, we've got to sell it off. This government is in the hands of the developers and the fossil fuel industry. They run this place. And $9 billion, $9 billion of public property, our property, has been sold off by this government. They are selling everything that moves or doesn't move. And we have got to make that a major issue. And public housing has to be part of it. Stop the sell-off of New South Wales property, people's property, and stop the sell-off of public housing and bring public housing back into the mainstream, where public housing is not just for people on welfare. Public housing actually should be for working-class people. We've got to change back to the whole concept that public housing is a right, housing is a right for all, public housing is a right for those working-class people who need it. So thank you very much. That was Jim McAway, a uh, housing activist um, uh, interstate from Queensland, coming and speaking at a parliament at a um, protest held um, last week, a march on Parliament House on in Sydney on issues around public housing. And I think he really kind of condensed some of the key issues that also we speak about in terms of access to public housing, access to the right sort of services, the uh, the, the backlog of maintenance that exists currently in New South Wales is $300 million in the public housing sector, $300 million that the government has decided not to spend on maintenance issues, yet we have a Liberal government that has $2 billion to tear down a stadium. Mm. What about the $4 million that they gave to a company in Queensland that only had, like, what, six six people? $400 million. Um, $400 See what I mean about numbers? See, a poor person does not comprehend this shit. I don't, um, you know, uh, because I've never seen that much mm. money. 100%. So I actually don't understand what that means. Speaking of, he's so right. Um, it's a human right and I guess you know we spend so much time fighting and articulating this that we I forget it I forget it that we're actually entitled to this stuff this is what a government's supposed to do Um, this is what all of these things have been set up for and now they're just being used to already make that small percentage of rich white people more richer and more unapologetic for their whiteness and their colonial shit that they reinforce. Exactly. And that whole, you know. And we covered we covered these yeah. logics in our neoliberalism episode, talking around the erasure of black organisations and the black economic systems that came out of the needs of the community mm-hmm. in Redfern and Waterloo in 1960, 1970. So we've got all these, you know, again, this is a huge case that we've been... Putting together, mm. um, you know, uh, about 
why this community is so valuable and the extraction of that value and the usage by these people to keep, you know, reinforcing that status quo, keeping poor people poor um, and the rich even richer. Um, Aggressive wealth redistribution. We've got another soundbite from member for Bal- the Greens member for Balmain, um, Jamie Parker, talking about the erosion, the erasure of public housing, as well as the um, the ways in which the Liberal government are currently been treating the public housing stock. I want to give you a few statistics to tell you a little bit about what's been going on with public housing. I was first elected as Parliament in 2011, and before that, I was involved in local government in Leichhardt Council. And when I was elected the maintenance backlog was over $300 million. And the former Labor government was selling up to 1,000 houses a year. And of course the Liberals got elected and what did they do? They made it worse. What they're doing is they're now not selling more properties, but they're selling what they call high value properties. And that's why they're getting places like Millers Point and flogging off whole communities, cleansing whole communities of public housing. And that's what we're here to stand up against. That's what we're here to fight against because we've got universal uh, Medicare, we've got universal education, and we need universal housing. In one of the richest countries in the world, we should have the opportunity for every person to be sheltered. And what I want to do is just tell you about a question that was asked yesterday in the parliament. Jenny Leung, my colleague here, the member for Newtown, put a question to the Premier and I want to tell you what that question was because it really encapsulates everything that's wrong with public housing. And she said, uh, Premier, my question is for you, given that the Minister for Family and Community Services is responsible for a public housing waiting list of over 100,000 people and the backlog of more than $300 million in maintenance, as well as the inadequacies in family and community services staff support and training which according to last week's order office resulted in a lack of safety to tenants and staff and record numbers of homelessness. How bad do things have to get, Jenny Leong said to the Premier, how, things, how bad do things have to get until the Premier will intervene or, when this incompetent minister? And you know what the Premier said? The Premier gave a very long speech about how they care about homeless people, how they care about public housing, but the facts betray the truth. And the truth is that back in the 90s, when the federal government started pulling out of investing money into public housing, other states stood in and filled the gap. But in New South Wales, the former government started selling houses. And this government is doing the same. So what we're seeing is a shortfall every year of over $100 million in the department. And how do they make up that shortfall? They sell houses. And cannibalizing public housing stock is the wrong way to go. What the government's doing to solve this problem, they say, is getting public housing properties and putting them in the community housing sector. So they're getting all this housing stock and putting it in the community housing sector. But what's that doing? What it's doing is getting rid of highly qualified, experienced, well-paid union members in the public service, putting them in the community sector where workers that have to transfer into the community sector are getting pay cuts of 20 and 30 percent. So it's important that we maintain public housing in public hands. While we recognise that community housing has a place, public housing needs to be in the public sector, invested in by taxpayer money. Now, if this government has got $2 billion to spend on knocking down stadiums, they've surely got $2 billion to spend ensuring that everyone has a home. It's a human right. It's something we all deserve. 
Exactly. You know, it's um, there we had Jamie Parker speaking at the, the March on Parliament around public housing, speaking around the backlog of maintenance, but also about the... Um, the ways in which the public housing um, issue or the way that the Liberal government is currently, cu- currently the strategies it's using to um, entirely dissolve public housing has shifted from, a, from what was being used by the, Liberal go- the Labor government in 2007 of selling up to 1,000, um, we obviously heard it in the clip, 1,000 um, properties a year we now see the shift to priority housing. He mentioned Miller's point, but it, you need to understand that what is also a, a priority community because of the intrinsic value of the land in relationship to its proximity to the CBD is Redfern Waterloo. This is what we're talking about, and this is the site that we've been discussing for the last 10 we've, episodes. We've been talking about how, you know, um, all these greedy eyes have been on this area for a very long time, and there's been a concentrated effort around the year 2000, Again, um, you know, after after the death of TJ Hickey, they actually created federal government bodies to supersede all of these local ones, you know, and to call this a state uh, side of state significance. It's exactly what they're talking about and unpacking. And we're not the only voices that are saying this and have been saying this. There are plenty of people that have been laying this all out on the table that just get ignored because it does not fit into this capitalistic idea neo neocon shit that's about to fucking get worse um and you know and this is what happens when these these mutations of colonization keep shifting because none of it really focuses on the humanness um and human resources and you know investing in that it's all about getting as much money as they can as quickly as they can precisely I think we heard with Jim McAway said at the beginning the the relationship, the kind of um, the redirection of the responsibility um, of the government, the government placing responsibility back onto the tenants in public housing mm. uh, cre- and creating. Now we now have legislation around these issues of the the social, the um, anti-social behaviour, which is you know as we were talking about last mm. week was one of the main leverage points for the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority, so just like what Lorna was talking after about. After they've overpoliced our communities, they've made every situation very very possible um, and advantageous for them by literally just locking up most of the population in the area. Um, and now you know that's the whole point of he- heavily overpolicing stigmatisation um, and monitoring, monitoring Aboriginal children before they were even committing crimes. So that's created a sense of fear, um, you know, basically is then again used in the courts um, to, uh, you know, deliver a guilty verdict. Um, a lot of people being locked up for fines as well, um, literally because of poverty. Um, and then, you know, they're being locked out of entitlements, housing entitlements that we are all entitled to and that we all deserve to be able to live safely, healthy and happily. So we've got a few more pieces of um, audio coming from the, the March on Parliament House. Here's a cut from a speech from Jenny Leung. That we should recognise that housing is a human right. Now we've heard the language start from the libs saying, oh, well, actually, you know, Housing isn't a right. Living in public housing is a right. It's a privilege. I say making decisions in that chamber on the behalf of the people of New South Wales is a privilege. And they are abusing that privilege way worse than any public...
public housing tenant story I have ever, ever heard. Now, I want to talk to you about two things today because we know and we are convinced here because we are at this rally that public housing is important. But I can tell you that there are two very, very disturbing things happening in this parliament and in New South Wales at the moment when we look at the political gender. The first is that public housing tenants are being demonised in our media and we see all sides of politics, the government and the alternative government playing into that bullshit. Shame. We see them playing into the bullshit of talking it up that there are problem tenants that have all these problem issues. So you might notice something. If you have a drama with your neighbour and you live in a private rental house, you've got a crazy neighbour or an annoying neighbour. But if you're living in public housing, you now have a name. You are called an anti-social person. There is actual policies now that exist to prevent anti-social behaviour. In normal communities, in normal society, they're called an annoying neighbour. A neighbour that has a drug problem, a neighbour that parties too hard. Well, if you live in public housing, this government has relabeled you as someone that is behaving in an anti-social behaviour manner and they can now do a whole lot of things to you as a result of that anti-social behaviour. In addition to that, we are seeing, and what just happened and was mentioned there, by the previous speaker in relation to the legislation that has just gone through. You might recall last year in Homelessness Week, yeah, there were tents in Martin Place. People were seeping up in Martin Place. What did the Minister for Homelessness do? She supported the increase of police powers to literally move those people out of sight and sweep those tents off Martin Place and kick the homeless people out so that she didn't have to face that reality. What we saw last week in Homelessness Week is the introduction of risk-based bonds for public housing tenants, which shamefully passed through the upper house yesterday that will see public housing tenants who might have been living in public housing for 10, 15, 20 years having to be paying bonds at market rent up to $1,400 and if they don't pay, what happens? NCAT is required to evict them. This is just beyond disgusting. It is absolutely vile and can I just say that I am going to be talking about housing a lot in the coming six months. And one thing that I know and I have seen from this Liberal Minister is they think because we have lots of public housing tenants living in our areas that know that there are issues around the lack of support for people with mental health services, that there are a whole lot of issues around the challenges with the failures of maintenance, they think they can introduce local allocation strategies that say people with drug convictions shouldn't be able to live in my electorate in public housing. They think they can introduce bonds for social housing tenants that call damage and that I'll stay quiet about it because actually the people that live in those communities will want those changes. Well, I can tell you now it's not like that. Let's think about this. Why are those people living in public housing? They're living in public housing because they are in need of shelter. And who is failing to deliver on these services? Well, actually, it's the Minister for Family and Community Services that isn't providing the necessary drug and alcohol and mental health support. Instead, we had the communities in Waterloo saying, we're starting a petition to the minister to say, fund more drug and alcohol and mental health support services in our public housing areas. They don't want to kick people out on the streets. It's only the evil liberals that want to do that. And that is why we need to kick them out in March next year. That for three years now, that since they've had the antisocial behaviour legislation in place, that we're now seeing that FAC staff were not resourced properly. In fact, there's an internal report that they've yet to make public 
which really will um, identify uh, the lack of resourcing that this government actually provides to um, ensure, if they want to uh, push their particular legislation and their agendas, you'd think they'd actually resource staff properly to be able to cope. Uh, you'd think they'd actually help families and individuals who are struggling if there is a bad tenant in their property. What this report actually revealed is that despite announcing their antisocial agenda three years ago, they didn't actually resource the staff or train the staff or provide any assistance to, in to ensure that they would help individuals who were struggling with a bad tenant in their particular property. So why announce it? What was the point? Other than more media spin. That's their strategy. That's a strategy for Goward yet again. Here, the responsabilisation and demonisation of public housing tenants, as we've been talking about for the past 10 episodes, it was the key strategy of the colonial invader, the colonial settlement is the... Their plans haven't changed much. Exactly. They we're just trying change to, language around it. We're trying to show you the, the commonalities, the links, the trends that you see in this behaviour, the demonisation and responsabilisation of Indigenous people, of public mm. housing tenants as mm. leverage to therefore take away more of their autonomy, take away more of their rights, take away more of their access mm. to housing. It's like, it's a terrible joke because it's like they had one job. Department of Housing had one job. And they keep trying to give the job to the people who live in the housing and then once they realise that they can't do it, they take away more of their rights. Yeah, they don't provide support. They underfund all of the drug and alcohol and, and all of this. And they blacklist them. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to follow up. I think that's a really good time to just um, let everybody out there know um, that there was, uh, from our community conversation, it was mentioned that there's a special hotline um, that we can get to to kind of fast track a lot of these maintenance issues. Um, and I've just got an email back, um, just really making it really clear of what to do. So tenants who have these issues that aren't being listened to um, should be contacting their MPs about long-term ongoing maintenance problems. And then those MPs will then call a hotline. Now, this is this hotline that was mentioned in that community convo, this secret secret hotline that apparently is just um, between all of these um, members of parliament um, and uh, department, I guess. Um, so, you know... But wait, isn't a government department established to be able to meet the needs of the public without intervening with the local members? You would think so, but apparently this is how we um, can get our maintenance issues sorted and fast-tracked. And, you know, it's terrible to say, but, you know, these mob, they're all really wanting to kick the shit out of each other. So, you know, again, we're the ones that get left... We're the ones that get passed around like that football. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a nasty game to play, but unfortunately this is one avenue that our tenants... Can pursue, mm. and which is making their local MPs accountable, um, and making them aware, and pretty much kind of you know shifting shifting that to them because that's their job that they will then go and chase up and you know speak so emotively about, and that again, there's other avenues that mm. should that you're told to pursue that don't actually get you anywhere and will cause more stress. 
and um, a lot more problems and a lot more pressure. Um, but also, as you can hear, and as, uh, as I hope that you, we can understand, and this is kind of the, the relationship that we've been trying to, or well, the, the relationship between land and housing and, and, and its relationship to tenants' maintenance that we're trying to hit home in this episode of talking around maintenance issues, is that the Liberal government and the land and housing that currently exists wants the maintenance to go unanswered, wants the $300 million budget the 300 million dollar deficit in public housing maintenance to increase so that it can legitimize the sell off of the public land mm. legitimize and leverage the complete the disrepair and the and and this willful neglect we've got another audio clip from the protests of Tony Mahaluk the labor party shadow minister speaking around these issues that it's no longer 60,000. I noticed the latest figure now, it's dropped down to 55,500. And I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you how they've done. That's right, they've fudged the figures, and I'll tell you how they've done it. They've removed off the list anybody that's temporarily suspended. So if you're in hospital and you can't return the letter within 14 days, you're temporarily suspended. So you're off the waiting list. How nice of Goward to figure out an innovative way of fudging the figures. So I can assure you, and I think everybody in this crowd knows, that I'm sure the real figure is much higher than 60,000. I think we all know that. Um, And I want to also raise uh, the issue about vacant properties. I want to raise this because when Labor left government, there was about 99 vacant properties. They're They're not worried about maintenance. They've just cut back 34 million from the maintenance budget. And they're doing that for the purpose of making sure they can sell these properties off. Because that's what Gout, and in particular Berejiklian, is very, very good at. Rampant property sell-offs. We've already seen it at Miller's Point. We're going to see it continuously when it comes to public housing. There are so many sites. Every time I gipper, it's impossible to get the information out publicly. But we know that properties are continuously being sold off under the Berejiklian regime. There's no question We need to be vigilant in finding out where these properties are because we know so many people are desperate for a home. They continue to be desperate for a home. The last census data uh, didn't alarm anybody in this crowd because I think all of you know that homelessness is a, is a, is a, is a catastrophe, really, in New South Wales. To think, down an 80% increase in homelessness, 7% increase in Western Sydney in some parts as high as 80% increase. I think about my area of Canterbury, Bankstown. Bankstown, an 80% increase in homelessness. And it might not be the homelessness that people traditionally think of. We know it's couch surfing. We know it's people living in cars, in garages, sharing bedrooms, um, and people who are even reluctant to come forward. Um, And there's no question that this is a government that is prioritising stadiums, prioritising... Um, you know, other projects like the Northern Beaches Tunnel, which suddenly has become a priority for this government, instead of actually tackling the real issue. Now, Goward is a master at, at media spin. There's no question about that, okay? And you've heard her out there today jumping on the back of, of the issue of a few bad apples. We know, and all of us accept, um, we don't want people committing fraud in housing. We don't want um, people destroying their public housing. But it shouldn't be a priority for fact staff. And last week's uh, Attorney General, sorry, Auditor General released a report, a scathing report. Speaking about 
That was Tanya Mahaluk at the parliamentary, um, at the protest at the, at the Sydney Parliament House last week, speaking around issues of the backlog for applications to public housing and the ways in which the Liberal government are currently shuffling and cooking those books to create a misleading set of statistics that'll make it look like they're being productive in this current time. Um, as you heard, they have discounted and discontinued contracts for anyone who is currently in hospital, imprisoned, uh, in remand, and that's their way of obfuscating and making it look like that they have actually decreased numbers of uh, applications to public housing through the allocation of housing. Um, I mean, it's just it's just time and time told and tried and true political manoeuvring, really disgusting behaviour being played out by a Liberal government that is trying to sell off as much public land mm -hmm. as it possibly can in as short amount of time as it possibly can. I just wanted to uh, bring um, the conversation back to, um, you know, some of the other things that happen when properties aren't maintained is that um, docs and facts can actually... Um, record you as a unfit parent and have your child taken away and this is the stark reality of some of this stuff and i'm just googling um prue prue a goward now and just really looking at the folders that she's held in the past mm. and it's really no wonder that she's a master of media spin um she has been the Minister for Family and Community Services and Minister for Social Housing since January 2017. Minister for Prevention of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. She was previously served as the Minister for Mental Health, Minister for Medical Research, Assistant Minister for Health, Minister for Women, uh, Minister for Planning. Um, and she's a, a representing Goulburn for the Liberal Party since 2007 in the Legislative Assembly. I think what's important to take from also a lot of this this commentary and, and, and the point that we wanted to make around exactly that, that, you know, what comes into, what, what the stakes are in relationship to young Indigenous families and their issues with docs and facts and, and the real reality of there being removal in this country and that this is playing out a very, 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 very scary mm -hmm set of conditions what what i'm trying what i'm trying to get across i guess and this is you know what i say to all of the people or the young people that i work with when i go into schools and stuff is that these people they know what they're doing and there's no coincidence it's actually a really carefully constructed plan it's actually a really carefully constructed scheme and these people have had these tools of colonization and dividing and dispersing and dispossessing and genociding people for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We are only just scratching the surface. We are only just becoming aware of how entrenched these tools and these tactics have been used against us. And they are full-out attacks on, on, on families. This is what you can see is that this, this, housing, this housing issue and the, the way around the sell-off of public land isn't a direct attack of families but Indigenous families. But, you know, this one minister has been minister for all these other areas. She knows all of these policies, um, you know, and this is the thing, I guess. They know everything there is to know about us. What the fuck do we know about them? What the fuck do we know? And this is really a call for everybody to be keeping these people accountable, keeping these people in every avenue that we could possibly have and create in the future to keep these conversations going because they have every tool that you could possibly think of to keep silencing us and keep minimising 
and hijacking and ambushing and dealing in stolen goods because this is our land that they are still planning and creating and, um, you know, buying and selling underneath us while they ignore our sovereignty to it. But while they use that and appropriate that sovereignty and those Aboriginal knowledge systems to do what they're doing now. We talked about in a uh, little bit, um, you know, in the tale of three cities. Um, and this is really what... <sighs> What this is, what this was all leading to, exactly. right? Um, we are fifteen minutes out from the closing of our final show for this season. He's counting down, everybody. Get ready, because <laughs> you're not going to have us next week, <laughs> at least for a little while. Um, we're going to cut to a song. A song for. Yeah. We've uh, got one last and audio. And we've got drop. one last little audio drop to take you through to kind of keep this key issue rolling through. Um, we'll be back. Do what you gotta do. See me when you can Man, I can understand how it might be Kind of hard to love a girl like me I don't blame you much for wanting to be free I just wanted you to know I've loved you better than your own candy From the very start It's my own fault What happens to my heart You see, I've always known you'd go So you just do what you gotta do Welcome back to Radio Skid Row. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna, 88.9 FM, with our final instalment. Um, we are closing up with a conversation around um, maintenance and the kind of political structures and the political neglect, the willful neglect of the funding of services, of the funding of maintenance, of the funding of issues around homelessness, um, the instrumental dismantling of indigenous families a lot of big things that we're trying to convey to you but you know what's changed in the last 250 years Lorna what are we going to listen to we've got a community our final conversation Um, and then we've got our final comments and you know it's all this what we've been doing is all about trying to spread this conversation and bring more voices into it so it's a conversation about um, the consultation Yes, about the consultation processes and some of the things that have been, you know, happening um, with that. I I just wanted to mention that one of the consultation processes that I was a part of, um, it was kind of shut down, um, you know, because we didn't see it as an economically viable thing to pursue um, because all these plans are based on what happened in New Zealand, which is, you know, pretty much a really different context to build stuff on when you have access to land and your sovereignty acknowledged within all of these parliamentary structures and all this sort of shit. So it was shut down. Um, but they are calling for artists connected to Gadigal country now, even though that consultation process 
pretty much had nowhere to go with that. So they found another avenue, which is again just undermining everything that was a part of that initial consultation process and then opening up a submissions of interest to artists. And that is one thing that has happened as a part of one consultation process I've been a part of mm-hmm. and we're going to hear um, some from some other people. Here we are. And I think I want to just ask about the consultation process. What are some of the things that you have experienced? Like, uh, have you been a part of the consultation processes? Do you know much about it? Oh, look, the consultation is like, you're pretty much questionnaires where you, you, you don't have a lot of option. Um, the questionnaires don't give you a lot of answering options. It's like this or this. Um, when, no, I want something else. <laughs> You know, there's no, there's no um, option. Choice. Yeah, there's no third choice. There's no, there's not a lot of input. It's basically, you know, you choose this, choose this, or choose that. Um, mm. It's the same now. They've got the three options out for the mm. estate plan. Um, so there's option one, two, or three. So apparently, uh, we can, we can go. Oh well, I like this bit of this one, and this bit of this one, mm. and this bit of this one. But there's no option four, which is no redevelopment. Say, yeah. mm. um, so like, would you like this piece of shit and a or, little bit of this rubbish? Maybe and a, a little. Yeah, yeah. Or they give you the option, and then they tell you what they decided anyway. Yeah, it's like, like okay, yeah, that's thanks for your feedback, but this is not really viable, or you know. Yeah. Um, Are you guaranteed a home? Yes, allegedly, yeah. Um, I, I personally have a lifetime lease, so I think I should have one. Other, p- um, like Waterloo, or they are saying are. that everybody has the right to return to Waterloo. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just something that um, a conversation that we've had previously, and I've really been thinking about it, um, about how poor people measure this stuff, this development. We're measuring this by how much sunlight we get. We, we're measuring, like, you know, this cityscape um, change and this attack on the cityscape um, as how much sun we can get. And that stuff's going to be eclipsed, you know, with these 40-storey buildings and 75,000 new people. Would you, would you like to touch on that? I'm happy to, like, just keep... I, I, can, I can say, yeah... Um I've seen some shadow drawings of the options for Waterloo Estate. Mm. Um, there's pretty much all in shadow. And there's a, oh, you know, it's got this much open space, which is, mm, I don't know, if it's, it's much different to what we've got now. Um, but there'll be five times as many people on it, mm. you know, trying to use that space. And, and of course, the plans are pretty vague and, mm. and indefinite anyway, so... But, yeah, no, no one, like, they say they're consulting with the community, all right, but um, yeah. even when they do, the community, even those who, who give their time, um, they, we don't know what it's like to have that many people on our, on our streets, like, in our neighbourhood. Um, yeah. It's, we, we cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. what it's going to be like with that many people and those giant buildings. Um, it's, it's not going to be Waterloo, it'll be just... Um, final point I want to make, I mean, we, we led the forefront for a long time. I used to dress up 
in red, black and yellow every year and I haven't felt the need to do that for about 15 to 20 years because everybody's doing it now. But we, we marched all through the 70s and 80s. I carried my babies in my belly marching. Lorna, the other girls and the boys too. There's a whole generation of our kids that don't have those memories <coughs> and it's because it hasn't happened to them. And they, that is what unified our kids in our community all the time, to come together for the march in the colours and to um, just be proud of being black yeah, and being a, being a survivor, mm. that we had the strength to survive. Mm. I don't know if we've got that strength anymore. Mm. Um, I can see it in our people's faces, they're just feeling kicked in, there's no part of their body that ain't bruised from a, a recent kick to it. Uh, and, and if they're moving out the way, if this girl's getting awards for moving people out, you know, I really, really worry for the future. This community is just being dissolved, disseminated, spread out, they don't care. Um, you know, we have a proud history in Redfern for the 45 years that I've lived here. We were the black heart of this city. We were the epitome of black resistance around the country. We ain't that anymore. We're sad and sorry imitation. And I don't like the imitators because they don't do it very well. Mm, um, uh, I was just thinking about how tired I am. Um, 200 and years, uh, 230 years tired, intergenerationally tired, as well as poor, apparently, um, as well as dispossessed. Um, and, yeah, what, we, what what does the next 200 years look like? Mm. Um, you know, um, this has been a really, um, again, you know, it's been really confronting. It's been a huge journey for us individually, but it's just reaffirmed stuff we already knew, which was how valuable our community is um you know i work in schools i get to really kind of see um that thermostat i guess um and measuring um you know certain issues that young people have with identity and there's been times where literally it sent me into a really deep dark depression just initially starting conversations getting young people to identify where they're from so that we can relate on that context i've walked into places with rooms of about 20 40 young people, potential university students, and not one of them could tell me where their people come from. And this is the stark reality of this dispossession. This is the stark reality of this divide and conquer um, tactic and aggression, these colonial tactics and tools that have been and will continue to be used against our people for as long as, you know, I guess we don't have knowledge of these tools. They will always be able to be used against us. And again, this is why it's so important to know, you know, th that history and to know um, that, you know, these uh, the colonial project has never been about investing in communities. Uh, it's never been about acknowledging Aboriginal people's humanness. It's never been about creating sustainable um, cities and communities um, it's never been about any of those things that we know we need to survive not even on an indigenous level that's across the rest of the world um, no, that's uh, well put 
I'm just trying to wrap up some of these things, some of these huge things, um, while I am feeling really um, heavy in my heart, you know, really listening to all this sort of stuff. Um, because again, you know, we've been lucky, me and my son, to stay there. But what's going to happen in the future? What are all the things that we're going to witness this mass population move out? We've got, you know, they've, we've, we've heard people talk about how there's a waiting list of over 60,000 and that's, you know, just applications. And, but, you know, it's okay to kind of have this influx of 75,000 people that are private um, tenants. Um, you know, I really find that number a little bit too close to kind of min- to reduce it as a coincidence. And again, none of this is a coincidence. It's all a very carefully constructed plan that has been 200 years in the process. Um, and that's what Survival Guide's all about. We're trying to take you across this terrain, take you through what we know, take you through what other amazing, powerful Indigenous speakers and Indigenous knowledge holders have been able to share with us about their experiences in this system, trying to speak to you directly, the listener, whoever you are, about what we are dealing with in this community and that how this has been played out on these people, on every every person in this country every indigenous person in this country has been at this the end of this project and that gentrification is colonization again mm. um i guess too on a localized level you know the department of housing has just literally used the the deaths in custody that have happened in this community in the last 14 to 15 years to justify the further erasure of the community instead of investing in that community and those people that they're supposed to invest in and maintaining their properties, which is the main objective of the function of the department in the first place. So if they're not actually doing that, so why do they exist in the first place if they're not doing that? Um, we have a large-scale redevelopment, like we said, of Redfern, of, of the Waterloo area. We're seeing Redfern change in front of our eyes. And we now, just recently, the handover of a, of a block of land to developers to build a experimental build-to-rent project, given, not sold, mm-hmm. given over to developers to develop private housing still at build-to-rent at market rate. Yeah. Um, They're saying 5% of that will be housing. But again, you know, they have just forgotten about rehousing all of the people that had previously lived there. It's taken time to get rid of all of those blocks um, to create that vacant plot of land right now, you know. So they're straight up not going to house any of those people within that 5% of housing that's been announced by Prue Goward. And she's also said that further plans will be announced by the end of the month. So outside of this political shitstorm of what's been happening this past week, we've seen, you know, the contestion for contest for the leadership of this country. We we also know as we've said that we've got a we've got an election at the, in the next 6 months. Housing as an issue, as a human right needs to be at the front of that agenda at whoever is running against in opposition or supporting in that way. We need to increase the access to public housing, access to housing in general, housing is a human right, mm. being able to live. Housing should be a verb. This should not be mm. a privilege. This should not be something that you gain access to. It mm. is something that is innately needed. It is the, the provision for the healthy life of children and, and families in communities in which they have mm. strong links to. It should not be, should not be discarded for the government's sake 
of making a few extra million dollars or not even making a million dollars, not even making a single cent off of giving land over to developers. It's outrageous that this is where we are at and this is what we're, this is what is happening, but it is, this is a call. This is a call for action. This is a call to engage deeper in the ways that your privileges intersect with the oppression of the people around you. I'm talking to anyone who is living in Redfern and Waterloo who has not taken, in, taken the time to appreciate the, the existence of the Indigenous community, the existence of that Indigenous history, the existence of the public housing estate, the existence of people who have gone into making their community a, div a diverse and wonderful place for you to now move into. But even all the private tenants and all the people that own those properties, the money that you are creating for these, these superpowers is never going to be enough. It will never be enough. So once they're finished with all of us, who do you think they will look to next? And this is, again, the, the reoccurring narrative that we're, we're continually talking about and we're, why we're so critical of colonisation. Um, and, you know, you always have to be critical of these things. Um, I, I just wanted to bring something back, but I forgot it. And, of course, this is what happens when we've been talking about this stuff for... for most of the year tenants exactly. contact your mps make them bring this shit up in parliament make them actually fucking bring this shit up um we've got conversations to continue petitions to sign protests to make we'll be down on the ground in red firm you've heard it from you've heard it from us this is a call out to community every community that this is important and we're going to be working in these next six months to do some really big things and we want you by our sides we want to say thank you to everyone who's been involved and everyone who's been helping us in this journey. Everything that we've been doing, we couldn't do without the help from the community, first and foremost, the place, the place that we grew up in, the place that brought us to this place and our state of mind. We also want to thank the Community Broadcasters Federation and Radio Skid Row, and as well as University of Sydney, um, all of our guests, Redfern, and We've got Mudgingal, Woman of Waterloo, 107 Projects and residents for continuing to engage in conversations that we have been just calling because of the need for it. Um, keep it. Keep it locked to this station because this is a revolutionary space. We are giving people that are being silenced microphones up in here. Mm. Get on it. Give us a call. Keep, it, keep posted to our Facebooks, Instagram, SoundClouds, all of that. Contact us um, because this conversation is going to keep, keep going whether they like it or not. You've been listening to Survival Guide. That's it. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>